know what I'm tossing fire, leaving Babylon, I'm trying, trying to escape this Utah. Who child is got to jump in two hours? That's why we got more than two stars. Two and a half in the situation, two shots. And though the road is rocky, I'm ready to try the next mile to break sight to the blind man. It's down to the left child. We will survive in this country wilderness. Swimming through the waters of Babylon like a rebel fish. Jumping is specialist, predatory and survivalist. Spitting heaven fire from his lips. Welcome listeners to time for an awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4, 6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people can turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom with all that getting it an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your hosts, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage, and catch the live stream at that location. You can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there also. You can go to abb2me.com forward slash time for an awakening. That's A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I forward slash time for an awakening and catch the stream there. Or you can download the TuneIn app to any of your devices. TuneIn is a free radio app. And then at TuneIn app, just type in time for an awakening. There you'll see the icon, and you can stream the program live, even into your car if you had the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's time for an awakening radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, you can type in time for an awakening radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor, before you leave that page, just hit that like button. It's time for an awakening radio program with the fan page on Facebook. And time for an awakening media is there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on time for an awakening media. Interesting articles that you can read, download at later times, and share with your friends. Also, check out that Time for an Awakening Marketplace and our partnership with the BB2Me. Always interesting things posted in the marketplace all the time from various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to time for an awakening media 
It's 7.07 here on this uh, cloudy Sunday evening here in the city of Philadelphia, and you're in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening and scheduled to be with us this evening in conversation is sociologist, educator, and director of the Kwame Ture Center in Leighton Laventille, excuse me, Trinidad. Dr. David Muhammad is scheduled to join us to close out Black August with reflections and celebrations of our ancestors' struggle against European assimilation. You can always join the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowner's insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 215- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. 
Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening at 713 here in the city of Philadelphia. And before we get started with our program this evening, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Art Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Elliot. How are you, Can you sir? hear me there? Yeah. Uh, oh, okay, I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. I, um, you know, as we move to the close of August, August um, being a memorable and eventful moment, and particularly, you know, you know, we've been trying to um, raise up Black August as far as recognizing those um, political prisoners um, in our community, those um liberators those um um they call revolutionary individuals who um spared shared their and spared their uh, gave their lives for a vision right of a free people in a land of captivity that some of us think maybe not all of us but some of us think that we're you know, whether that captivity is the captivity of our mind, um, the captivity of our labor, um, the captivity of our, you know, just and what our cultural behavior, um, those uh, men and women, uh, women and men who gave their lives, this we were, um, we've been acknowledging, you know, by looking at David Walker's appeal, um, those individuals. And as we move to the close of this month, hopefully, you know, those in the Time for Awakening audience have also been reflecting of what do they see this, how should they recognize and honor those who gave, given their lives, but also how should they prepare, right, um, for this, this grand vision of what liberation means that those individuals gave their lives and became political prisoners for. So I'm, um, I guess I'm more upbeat than I've, at previous moments because I guess I'm seeing that um, as an old, you know, those who seen freedom um, from chattel slavery, seeing victory um, on the horizon. I see um, 
reparations uh, repair, uh, i.e. victory on the horizon. So I'm doing fine today, Ali. You know, went all the way around just to say that. Well, you know, we, we got a special guest joining us this evening and uh, to reflect on the, the, uh, the re- we're going to reflect and celebrate uh, the struggle of our ancestors, a, a black struggle against European assimilation on the continent and here in the diaspora. But before we do that, Richard, you just mentioned about how we should look at this. And some of our people might not look at it at all. And I know there's only a small percentage because they don't have the proper information. They don't understand. Uh, They may not know all of the nuances of our struggle and the crimes against humanity that's been committed by Europeans over the past 400 years since they brought our ancestors here in chains. Uh, to these west, to the uh, the shores of North America, to the islands in South America, but before I do that, I want I want to play a segment, and it's only about thirty seconds of something that the president of this country said in reference to that bombing that happened in Afghanistan, a country where Western forces was trying to dominate and assimilate. A population, and they were basically forced out of there. And it was a bombing at the airport, killing, uh, it, according to published reports, 60 Afghans and about 12 or 13 U.S. soldiers. And it's something he said, Richard, that's, uh, I think it, it kind of mirrors what you were saying. And it should be a stance that we should always have taken with. Uh, our, our former captors, put it that way. Let me play this, Richard, to get you a, a brief view on it before I bring in our special guest. If I can pull this up here. For those who carried out this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. I will defend our interests and our people with every measure at my command. Richard. Can you hear me? Yes. You heard his comments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. About We'll not forgive and we'll not forget. We will make you pay. Now, for the atrocities committed against our ancestors, and that continues since we've been brought to these shores and before we got here, shouldn't that be the stance of our people? Because it was never atonement made for any of that. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, Elliot, that, that question you raised and maybe. Uh, because, we, I mean, we're told by Europeans all the time, oh, well, forget about that, move on. And some mm-hmm. of our people adopt that stance. But you don't hear Europeans adopting that stance with other people. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I was just thinking that's and 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 listening. You know, even listening to David Walker. That that question is a question that we've been debating for maybe um, over a hundred and fifty years. Well, to me, it shouldn't be a debate, but I understand what you're saying. Um, we're going to bring our special guests on to, uh, you know, and, and 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 some of the reasons why our special guest is with us. You know, during this month, Richard, you hear all kind of things thrown out there to cause confusion. Uh, Africans sold Africans into slavery, and then they bring up names of people and uh, traders that, that participated in those things. Uh, like it's a whole narrative of that going on. Like the whole thing is confusing and it shouldn't be. Uh, we're going to bring our special guest on to kind of tell us a little bit about himself, about the Kwame Turi Center in uh, Laventille, Trinidad. Our special guest this evening in conversation is sociologist, educator, and director of the Kwame Turi Center in Laventille, Trinidad. Dr. David Muhammad is with us. Uh, from the islands. Dr. Muhammad, are you there? Yes, sir, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, sir, I can hear you. It's uh, a little foggy, but we're going to fight through it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Can you? Yes, sir. Yeah, I can. I, I, we'll do it. It's, it's no problem. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks. It's an honor and a pleasure to be on with you all the way over there in Philadelphia. And, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to our discussion. Dr. Muhammad, before we get into um, mm-hmm. highlighting our people's struggle on the continent before we got here and since we've been here, because it's been struggles in the islands, it's been struggles here in these continental United States, um, but I want you to start on the continent. But before you do that, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and about the, the Kwame Ture Center, about the Black Agenda Project, uh, give us a little yeah. thumbnail sketch about what's going on. Well, uh, thanks again for the opportunity. I am the Trinidad and Eastern Caribbean representative of the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam. And we launched a Caribbean-wide organization called the Black Agenda Project, which is based on the template of what was called the Millions More Movement, which was created by Minister Farrakhan for the 10th anniversary of the Million Man March. So our organization is structured under nine ministries or action groups, which are health, agriculture, education, security, arts and culture, business, justice, information, and science and technology. And through this organization, we acquired three quarters of an acre of land from the state in Trinidad six years ago. And with no government, no corporate, no business support, we constructed our own building, a 6,000 square foot education center, which we named in honor of Kwame Ture, formerly Stokely Carmichael, who was born approximately one mile away from the center in Portisville, Trinidad. And from that time to now, we officially launched on African Liberation Day, which is May 26th in 2018. And we have consistently been conducting a series of programs, in particular education programs for our young people. We have had public speaking workshops. Um, I do my lectures there every Sunday 
We have um, business expos. As a matter of fact, yesterday we hosted our eighth African Expo, where we believe in uniting, pooling our resources, coming together, forming skills banks and think tanks, and across the broad spectrum of work, occupations, and professions, skills, talents, and aptitudes, we can find some kind of network association between one another to strengthen our own social objectives. And a major component of the mission, of course, is to pass these principles on to the next generation so that through succession planning, they can continue the struggle. But Dr. Muhammad, um, I saw a um, video class that you did, and, yeah. I, and I, I guess it was part of the Black Agenda uh, project, where you were mm-hmm. highlighting and discussing our struggles on the continent and the struggles of our ancestors against uh, European assimilation, European invaders on the continent. And then you, you kind of brought it to these shores, but kind of walk us through some of the things that you discussed, because I thought it was very interesting and enlightening. And I'd like our listening audience to hear it and be a part of it. Um, talk about somebody because it's a lot you know during black august especially and and usually you'll see when they wait till till um whether it's black history month black august they'll wait till things kind of highlight the struggles of our people here and they'll throw out other narratives so kind of walk us through uh some of the things that you uh talked about right so we expressed concern and have been expressing concern over the fact that they constantly bombard these conversations with a one-sided view that has been so repetitively uttered that we ourselves have absorbed it and we, like parrots, have repeated it without having any, any understanding of it. And that is this narrative that Africans sold other Africans into slavery. We have been made to hear this for multiple reasons, but one particular new reason, and that is to attempt to nullify the rationale for reparations for the crimes against humanity that African people have suffered as a result of the slave trade. But even though there is some truth in that narrative, it is more important, we feel, to tell the full side of the story that Africans have invested heavily on the African continent in waging war against the slave trade. Now, this is something that we hardly hear at all, but on the African continent, before, I mean, we even got over to America and the West, you had, for example, several Africans who were kings, rulers, monarchs, heads of government, heads of sovereign nations and countries that use their army, their defense, their military, and their national security objectives to go to war against European slave traders. There are numerous examples, such as Queen Nzinga of Angola, who, as head of state, fought the Portuguese for 30 years. You have the um, Baga people of present-day Guinea, Tomba, around the 1700s, who not only did they go to war against 
slavery, with the Baga people, but they formed and built alliances with neighboring nations to militarily combat um, the slave trade. You had King Nzenga Maramba of the Congo, who also went to war against the Portuguese. King Agaja Trudeau of Dahomey sent armies to capture and destroy slave trading posts. And even on the ships themselves, according to the records of the British, French, and Dutch um, slave traders and shipping records and newspaper clippings, they point out at least 483 reports of attacks by Africans in Africa against slave ships and their crews. Three Africans coming from the shore also launched 92 attacks that are documented. Also, 388 insurrections carried out on board 368 slave ships between 1698 and 1807. All of this is in the research of David Richardson. Um, and, you know, they estimate that hundreds, several hundreds of thousands of Africans would have been saved from enslavement as a result of these efforts by Africans on the continent. And even by extension to that, you have had a number of efforts of African resistance on the slave ships and also in the so-called New World on arrival that were systematic, that were orchestrated, that were choreographed, such as denying support to the established order, denying and diminishing or eliminating the hold of enslavement. Um, there was the running away, of course, in America, there was the Underground Railroad and uh, Sister Harriet Tubman, who's about to be on the $20 bill. But you actually have whole communities, such as in Jamaica and Suriname, of escaped enslaved Africans who formed new societies altogether. In Jamaica, you had Queen Nanny, whose community of free Africans became so powerful that the British actually went to negotiate with her. Um, so all of these are stories that have not been told. But instead, we have heard, again, this, this negative um, diminishing narrative that Africans sold Africans. And that is designed to injure our spirit, you know, take away from us that spark or hope to pursue reparations and feel that, you know, we will forever be locked in this kind of downward spiral and that it doesn't even make sense, you know, raising the cause because our worst enemies are ourselves. And that clearly is not true. Dr. Muhammad, the, um, you pointed out uh, that, that it's uh, hundreds of uh, documented cases of attacks yeah. on ships before they left the continent by our ancestors. Yeah. Co- coordinated attacks, not just uh, individuals yeah. uh, fighting back. Coordinated attacks. Uh, yeah, th- th- these are the ones that the British, the Dutch, and the French would have documented themselves in their own records. Okay. All right. Now, yeah. now when, when we came here and started uh, in the islands and eventually hit these shores, uh, a lot of our ancestors went to South and what they call South and Central America. The, the, and, 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 and I want you to kind of highlight some of the our ancestors from the islands that came here and made an impact. And when I say came here, I'm talking about left the islands and came to the quote unquote states. Right. Before we get there, let's talk about somebody that uh, Richard 
uh, had been talking about for the past couple programs, David Walker right. and David Walker's appeal. Now, it's it. I haven't read anything to this effect because I know that David Walker's appeal has a, had a tremendous influence on a lot of the the men here. Uh, yep. Martin Delaney, uh, Henry Holland Garnett, and others, Frederick Douglass, a lot of those men had read yeah. the appeal. Um, was the appeal influential in the islands among our people? Um, the David Walker's appeal was, I mean, it's, it's not really, to be honest, part of the Caribbean history narrative. Okay. However, in, um, in, in my book, Black Studies, we had embellished his call for, uh, as, as an alternative to the traditional abolitionist position, um, you know, about 70 or 80 years before emancipation, uh, David Walker called for vengeance against the white man for his crimes against humanity. Mm-hmm. And in, it, you know, from, from one point of view that contains within it uh, a, a passionate appeal for what could be reparations. But David Walker also expressed the hope that the cruel and wicked behavior of the white man towards black people could and hopefully would change. And this would make vengeance unnecessary and with vengeance being unnecessary, it leads us simply to traditional compensation. Um, but of course, I mean, the, the, but when you think about it, the courage of David Walker at that time, to, I mean, it's similar to almost to not saying that Gabriel Parker, you know, to put out that kind of narrative and for them to put a price on his head. You know, I think it was um, $10,000 if you capture him alive and $1,000 if you capture him dead, which would have been some significant cash back then. <laughs> but um, but it definitely raised a conversation. And I think, you know, a full discourse on Black studies wouldn't be complete without some kind of examination of David Walker's appeal. Richard, uh, jump in here. You know, the the question as, as you um, raised that, Dr. Muhammad, uh, the thought that came to my mind was, well, um, in, say, Trinidad or in the Caribbean, especially in that period, who would, who, whose voice or what person would have equaled um, what um, Walker was saying as far as that um, um, being clear, um, taking a, a, a liberating stance, a, a reparative stance? Um, and, and at that, at, at either in that time period or someone else in a time period that you identify gives the same re- the same um, impact that David Walker appeal and David Walker gave at, at that point in time. That is not such a magnificent question, because to be honest, I have never thought of it that way, but. Um, Jamaica have in their, um, not in their constitution, but, but from, from their parliamentary agreement, they have added persons such as Samuel Sharp and Paul Bogle and 
George William Gordon and Nanny of the Maroons as national heroes, along with Marcus Garvey and Norman Manley. Um, and all of these would have fought in the struggle to end enslavement. But I don't really think there's anything quite like um, the David Walker's appeal, though. In Trinidad, you had the African Mandingo Muslims who were abolitionists of sorts who um, came together and drafted some kind of um, proposal for repatriation. Of course, repatriation is where the reparations argument started because before we even mentioned reparations, we spoke of um, repatriation. And, um, you know, so, so the African Muslims were all free before the end of slavery. Um, and there was that idea that, you know, if, if you're going to end slavery, just send us back to Africa. Don't even bother to go through this whole emancipation ceremony. Um, you also had Kofi in Guyana, who led a rebellion in 1763. And, you know, I mean, massacred uh, like 346 white people. Um, so you have individual uh, characters like that. Like in Barbados, you had um, Bussa, the Bussa Rebellion in 1816. So you have each of these heroes of enslavement. I guess, again, similar to the Nazi in a type model. But on terms of actually publishing a formal ideology that challenges the justice of enslavement as opposed to simply fighting against it through rebellion or revolution style. Um, you know, maybe out of this conversation, we should take the responsibility to incorporate the idea of David Walker's appeal um, more Caribbean-wide. And, 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 and if I can, um, Elliot, Go I ahead. want to incorporate the ideal that you raised and the question you raised and the uh, response that um, Dr. Mohammed gave um, from the appeal to, to give the audience what we should be looking for and as we continue this conversation. Um, in the um, fourth article, he says, I acknowledge that there are some deceitful and hypocritical wrenches amongst us who will tell <laughs> us one thing while they mean another, and thus they go on aiding our enemies to oppress themselves and us. But I declare this day before my Lord and Master that I believe that there are some true-hearted sons of Africa in this land of oppression, but pretend, pretended liberty, who do in reality feel for this suffering brethren who are held in bondage by tyrants. Some of the advocates of this cunning and devised plot of Satan represent us to be the greatest set of cutthroats in the world, as though God wants us to take his work out of his hand before he is ready. He is ready. Does not vengeance belong to the Lord? Is he not able to repay the Americans for their cruelty with which they have afflicted African sons and daughters without our inheritance unless we are ordered? And I, and I thought that, you know, uh, speaks to what you were saying, um, Brother Muhammad, in the sense of what we, you know, we have to find that tone no matter where we are, right? And and Elliot, um, it, it reflects what 
Biden thing, right? But looking not just externally, but internally. Um, I want to, I want to, if you don't, for my question, I want to go back to the uh, center. Um, I was intrigued in the um, the offerings that the center made, and primarily about yeah. um, succession plan, business succession planning, because I think that that's so powerful and important for us as we deal yeah. with Black August. Um, can you um, help us place this in our context of what is succession planning and why is it so important as a part as a part of our reparatory justice um, action? But the, the reason it's important on the surface is because this Holocaust took 400 years for it to get to the degree of deprivation that we are in now. So clearly it's going to take much more than just 400 days to get us out of it. This is an intergenerational as well as an intragenerational challenge that will involve the passing on and the inheritance of a mantle from the elders to the young. And then when those same young get old, we'll have to pass it on to their young and so on and so forth for quite a few generations um, because it's, it's simply impossible for us to complete this in just one go. So therefore, we have to find some way to instill within the minds of those um, younger ones among us that this struggle is something that they have to be born into and even die in leaving it to those coming after them who still would be nowhere near completion. Um, the unfortunate thing about this for us is people of African descent are the only people who have to be academically taught the value of the intergenerational continuity of their collective ethnic objectives. No other races. Well, I apologize. Yeah. Please, please say <laughs> oh. that. That oh. is powerful and important. I want you to go back into, yeah. Go, go ahead, Richard. Go ahead. And then, then go ahead, Dr. Bahamut. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, so basically, people of African descent are the only people who have to, in, an, in a formal academic manner, teach, train, and transfer information onto our younger generations in a way that they have to embrace something that is taught to other cultures naturally. The whole idea of a black man teaching a liberation ideology appears to be threatening to other ethnic groups. No one feels threatened by the idea of a Chinese man teaching Chinese history to Chinese people, or a European man teaching European history to European people, or an Indian man teaching Indian history to Indian people. But when it comes to a black man teaching black history, to black people, it seems to have some kind of connotation of either rebellion, revolution, uprising, destabilization, social chaos or disorder, and the withdrawal of an economic spending force that has empowered other ethnic groups to the detriment of our propertylessness and poverty. And so, disturbing that entire status quo, 
which of course would not be welcomed from any economic perspective. So therefore, there is the encouragement of us remaining in the dark as it pertains to our history and the justice that needs to be pursued. So bearing all of that in mind now, there are long-term government administrative national objectives to keep us ignorant, keep us in the dark. And that has been pushed and promoted through our education system, through our religion, and in particular through our culture. So we now have to take those same principles, such as, now these are some basic principles that you don't ever have to teach anyone of any other race or ethnic group. Things like support black business. We say that all the time. In fact, we have memes, mantras, posters, and banners that say that. No other race on earth needs to say that to members of their own ethnic group. <laughs> imagine imagine a, a Chinese group uh, on Facebook or Instagram or any kind of social media platform sending around messages to each other, support Chinese business. <laughs> and here, that's laughable. White people don't have to tell other white people we need to stick together. They're already stuck together. Things like we must respect and protect the black woman. Who, who else says anything like that? Because again, it is part of the biological nature of any intelligently thinking organism to protect and respect the means by which it reproduces its own image and likeness and produces through procreation and reproduction its own offspring for the future. That is understood. So what has happened to black people that you actually have to tell them to do that? And when you really stack up all of this newfound state of collective confusion, it tells us something much bigger. Okay, so there was a deliberate brainwashing mission to ensure that our minds are adjusted in such a way so that even though the shackles and chains of chattel slavery have been removed from our hands and feet, they have been securely affixed to our minds so that our behavior now replicates the same behavior that we were engaging in when freedom was not even an option. Now freedom is an option. We have that choice at this moment, but we're thinking as if we still have chains on our brains. Uh, that, that, uh, that in itself shows the damage that was done generationally to our people uh, through this uh, oppressive uh, European government and chattel enslavement. It shows the damage, uh, Dr. Muhammad. Yeah, and what's even worse than that is, okay, so it is proof and evidence that damage has been done, but when you lift your voice to condemn that and seek to reverse it, you are now called racist. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a problem in multicultural, cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic Caribbean societies where we, are, we constantly have these mantras and narratives thrown at us. All races must live together. We all must stand hand in hand in harmony with one another. You know, let's, let's end hatred. Let's end racism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the people are told these things. 
kind of dialogue that seems to not be in sync with that narrative is seen as disruptive to the society. But the truth of the situation, take for example, I mean, all of these countries have tremendously high crime rates, gun violence rates, Latin America and the Caribbean. And most of it is related to the drug trade. But the sociology of crime in the Caribbean shows, at least for Trinidad and Tobago, there is not one African drug lord on the top level, not one, not even one. Top-level drug lords, traffickers of illegal narcotics are Syrians, whites, Chinese, and Indians. But when you go into the prisons, as I do, you'll see that close to 95% of the individuals in prison for drug offenses are young Africans. But... But none of us are the ones who are doing the importing and the major trafficking. But we're the ones who are going to jail for it. Now, that's truth. But it is an inconvenient truth in a society where those who hold power need to preserve that power by continuing to spread a blanket of ignorance. So when you get up and say something like that, which is the truth, the fact that it is challenging a position of safety for the criminals then it is unwelcome, and like I said, it calls racist, etc. Dr. Muhammad, we um, it's a few other things I want to introduce into uh, into what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, before we do that, let's uh, let's talk briefly because it's other people during that era that yeah. influenced him, and one of the reasons why he came to the continent of the United States is because he was influenced. But let's talk about Marcus Garvey. Yeah. It was other people during that period of time that was highly influential that came from the islands and came to the States. In fact, if you look at the time when Garvey came, he might've been, it was a, it was a, a whole slew of people that were already here that had came from the islands yeah. and that were very influential. Talk about some of those ancestors and, and their influence, and then let's key in on Garvey. <laughs> right. Well, um, Marcus Garvey, of course, stands as somewhat of a landmark in accomplishments on the organizational level. Uh, prior to Marcus Garvey, um, of course, there were several influences that he had, because even before settling in the United States in um, 1910, he went to Costa Rica and other parts of the Caribbean. As a matter of fact, um, Panama, and this is so interesting about Garvey. He had a huge, he had a massive appeal among African people in Spanish-speaking populations, which is something that we have almost completely lost today. Because the, U- the UNIA, Marcus Garvey's organization, was, was all over the region. But um, obviously he had the most um, branches of his organization in America. But second to that, I believe, was Cuba. Third to that was Panama. Fourth was Trinidad, and then fifth was Jamaica. 
so I mean, both Panama and Costa Rica um, are Spanish-speaking countries, you know, and you know, so so he kind of laid roots in those areas. He also went. Um, to other Latin American countries among black populations where he was influential in a very big way. And um, so, so, you know, that would have been somewhat of a springboard for him. I think it's also worth mentioning, and this is a story that um, many, many don't know, but when, when Marcus Garvey was in New York in the, in the 19-teens, he befriended a man from Vietnam who became very interested in his philosophy. This Vietnamese man used to work um, at various restaurants. You know, he would wash dishes and clean tables and so on. And he started attending Marcus Garvey's lectures. This was in 1917, 1918 in New York. So, and they became friends. I'm going to cut that story right there and fast forward about six or so decades. That man who befriended Marcus Garvey from Vietnam went on to become the only leader of a country in the history of this world ever to defeat America in a war. That man was Ho Chi Minh. And when America lost in the Vietnam War. When they fled and ran, they left behind so much equipment in Vietnam that they made Vietnam Vietnam overnight the fourth most well-equipped army in the world. The icing on the cake to that story is when our beloved brother Kwame Ture, formerly Stokely Carmichael, visited Ho Chi Minh in 1975, Ho Chi Minh told Kwame Ture, he said, ah, he said, your people can only be free if they follow the philosophy of my old friend, Marcus Garvey. Now, that for influence probably speaks more volumes than hardly any other biography that we have available to us. But also a key influence to Marcus Garvey, of course, um, was Henry Sylvester Williams. Now, Henry Sylvester Williams hosted the world's first Pan-Africanist global conference. This was in London in the year 1900, where he had delegates from 30 different nations around the world. Now, this is at a time where, you know, a plane ticket wasn't an easy thing to get. And here, Henry Sylvester Williams of Trinidad hosted the world's first Pan-Africanist Congress. And um, like I said, representatives from 30 different countries came. And Henry Sylvester Williams started a newspaper in England, which was called the African Orient World. And he hired an editor who was an African Muslim from the Sudan, whose name was Dus Muhammad Ali. 
on Muhammad Ali, Deuce Muhammad Ali, his editor, hired a junior assistant. And that junior assistant's name was Marcus Garvey. And now remember, Henry Sylvester Williams is largely considered to be the father of Pan-Africanism, and then later on, George Padmore and C.L.R. James, also out of Trinidad, um, on the academic level, continue to promote that idea of Pan-Africanism. And George Padmore, of course, became an assistant to President Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana and assisted in ushering in Ghana as becoming the first independent African country in the New World. And then the story ends where it begins because it was a Stokely Carmichael who left America to go and live in Africa, and he changed his name. And he took the, he took the first name from Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana and the surname of Seko Toure of Guinea and created the name Kwame Toure. And he established, uh, and this is one point that we love to make, that Kwame Toure established the all- African People's Revolutionary Party and not the some African People's Revolutionary Party. <laughs> and so, Marcus, no, because almost all the organizations that we start today are uh, some African People's Revolutionary Party because they're so divided. It's like a cancer. But um, of course, Marcus Garvey, even the Honorable Elijah Muhammad had said that we must mention Marcus Garvey regardless in our conversations on the liberation struggle. So, um, but the story of Marcus Garvey, though, it is a sad one because the first six men ever, the first six black men ever to be employed by the FBI, this is in the 1920s, under the leadership of J. Edgar Hoover in the 1920s. Remember, he was around for the assassination of both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. But the FBI, which back then was called the BOI, it was the Bureau of Investigation. The first six men that the BOI had employed um, were all employed for the sole purpose of bringing down Marcus Garvey. And, um, you know, they did. They, they got him on the mail fraud charges and then he was imprisoned and the real sadness of i mean we're, we're used to that as you know victims of the american government but it was when he went back to jamaica that um you know the story got even more sad because they seized his property um you know marcus garvey was sent to jail twice um in in Jamaica, you know, they charged him for libel. He went up for elections, and I mean, they were just on him. Took away his property, took away his freedom, and you know, so he ended up leaving Jamaica and going to England. And as the story goes, on January 1940, he picked up a newspaper and read that he had died and he got a stroke from reading that he was dead. And that was in January, 1940. And he subsequently died um, six months later in June, 1940, alone, 
you know. So, I mean, for, for one among us to rise that great, um, but that was such an orchestrated, you know, such an orchestrated um, destruction. But I wrote, again, I wrote about all of that in my book, Black Studies, where we, we mentioned the individuals, James Edward Emos, Arthur Lowell Brent, Thomas Leon Jefferson, James Wormley Jones, and Earl E. Titus, the first black men hired by the FBI, and they were hired for one purpose, to destroy Marcus Garvey, who was found guilty in 1923 of the mail fraud, and he was sentenced to five years in prison, you know, and then to be sent back to Jamaica and for it to continue, just horrific. Yeah, you know, you know go ahead, Rich. Go ahead. You know, I just want to make this connective point to the clip that you paid er- earlier, right? Because I think it's important to understand what Biden said about hounding you down. Hmm. When we look hmm. at the, the historical experience of Mr. Garvey, hmm. hounding him down to death, we cannot ex- under we. In the moment, the spirit of Black August and political prisoners, we cannot overlook what these people will do. Do I know it? That's why I played it. Hmm. So we can hear these words out of European mouths and understand that they'll tell you what they want you to believe. Forgive, uh, uh, turn your cheek, uh, all these other things, but they don't. Uh, those things don't apply to them. Um, we're going to take a brief break. And when we come back, um, in in fact, this is what I want to mention too. And when you was mentioning those six men, um, that guy warmly, he, after he, uh, exposed and, and, uh, and, and did his job for Hoover and Mm -hmm. brought uh, Marcus Garvey down, he joined, um, Cyril Briggs organization, African Brotherhood, but he was exposed when he right. joined them. <laughs> and the people recognized yeah, and, who he and, was. And, you know, it, it's as if, again, this is how it's like they believe we don't read or we don't listen to the news or we don't investigate anything. It was the same with um, Gene Roberts, you know, same man who was giving Malcolm X mouth-to-mouth mm-hmm. resuscitation after he was shot, went on and joined the Black Panthers. You know, and now there's this movie, um, Judas and the Black Messiah, about Fred Hampton and, you know, the individual who joined and got so close to him. But that's the story of all of our organizations. You know, it's, it's like these are unique cases when, again, that's the story of our lives. They don't change the playbook. They use the same playbook. Exactly. And that's why succession planning is so important. Absolutely. To pass Absolutely. on that understanding within the, what Kwame um, Ture has um, informed us when we do, and that is organize, organize, organize. Yeah. Before we take a break, uh, Dr. Muhammad, and we're in conversation with sociologist, educator, and director of the Kwame Ture Center in Laventille, Trinidad. Dr. David Muhammad is with us in conversation uh, with some reflections and uh, celebrations of Black August. Uh, and we're going to mention some other things, too. So you can get involved in the conversation. You can do that by dialing 215-490-9832. Before we take a break, 
Dr. Muhammad, uh, because at the Kwame Ture Center, you're developing future leaders. It's clear. How important is it that we, because in any struggle for freedom or anything else, you need leadership, organized strategies, uh, uh, plans of advancement, plans of attack. You need leadership to do this. Europeans figure they can cut you off at the pass in any movement that you do because they'll develop leadership for you. And sometimes these people are well disguised. But how clear is it to us that we need to not only develop, but to vet, to uh, uh, to really, uh, uh, I don't want to say uh, uh, use a strainer to almost to, we really need to really be clear when we're organizing our leadership now, because this man has been shrewd. Uh, he knows what he's doing when it comes to infiltrating our people. And he's really stemmed a lot of movements because he have put people in here or people in the movements that has really derailed things. So when we look at things now, we look at things on the African continent. We look at uh, people here that have been developed and placed in these positions to help out European hegemony and and uh, Western systems. How important is it that we develop our own leadership in your estimation? You know, it's probably much more important than we have ever appreciated anything before. Okay. And an indicator that we do not appreciate this enough, I think, is found in our failure to take fatherhood as seriously as we should. My PhD research in sociology is actually on black youth at risk from juvenile delinquency to criminal gang activity. And we identified through both quantitative and qualitative research, that there are six main causal factors that are responsible for our young males going astray, which are one, broken homes, dysfunctional families, and faulty parenting, in particular, absentee fathers, two, poverty and unemployment, three, cultural deprivation, four, negative peer group influences and gangs, five, a lack of personal self-motivation, and six, educational and achievement. And out of those six, we extract the key three, which are dysfunctional families, negative peer group influences or gangs, and educational underachievement. Mm. But further investigation has shown that these three, or the six causal factors, in particular, the three main causal factors, by extension, only have an impact when they exist in combination with each other. So, for example, the allure of gangs among our young male teenagers is very, very strong. But that lure or gravitational pull towards that particular negative scenario is 
limited almost completely in the absence of the other causal factors. So for example, if a young male grows up in a home with a father who is present and available as a positive male role model and one worthy of being emulated of whom the son looks up to and admires. And in addition to that, the young individual has successfully achieved academically to a degree where he could be on the verge of some kind of tertiary level education to take him on the trajectory to a lucrative occupational profession. So if those two factors are there, then the alluring to become a member of a gang almost disappears. But you take that same individual, put him in a broken home where there's single parenting, poverty, excessive use of alcohol, drugs, violent language, and a hostile, aggressive social environment, and you couple that with having dropped out of school, well, then joining a gang becomes a primary option. But when you take into consideration, again, all of these factors once more, poverty, unemployment, negative figure of influences, gangs, lack of personal motivation, education and achievement, learning disorders, all of them are rooted in the first causal factor, which is the stability or functionality of the home. And if in our homes, the springboard or launching pad to enter eventually into other social institutions and environments was a toxic one, a negative one, a demotivating one, then you're sending that individual out there, both vulnerable and susceptible to all of those other secondary negative forces, which brings us right back to the black man. How much of his social self has he invested long-term in fatherhood? How much of his consciousness has been dedicated towards being a good example? And really, and in truth, and in fact, there's a bigger solution there than there is in so many other proposed solutions. But the society has failed to take into consideration the historical impact of these contemporary realities. And the historical impact is the fact that the black man was used as a stud horse to breed more slaves. He was used as a reproduction machine to buy, sell, trade products who were human beings. And during this whole process, he was denied the right to get married, to live within the role of a father, to be a mentor to his children. So that, after three or four or five generations, became a cultural practice that was considered socially acceptable by the offspring that followed. So now today, we were never slaves. We were never in shackles and chains. But our misbehavior and indiscipline would resemble that of the slave who was in shackles and chains, who was forced to breed like an animal against his will. But now, it is our will that we live like that, even though there are no shackles and chains, which shows, again, that the shackles and chains 
have been placed elsewhere on our minds as opposed to just on our bodies. So the whole question of leadership begins with fatherhood. And again, it does not necessarily mean that that has to be a biological capacity within which fatherhood takes place. No, we, we believe strongly in the old African proverb of it taking an entire village to raise a child, that every single individual who has any kind of social skill or aptitude or ability should contribute in the pool of raising our children because that's our security for tomorrow. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, you can get involved in the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. With some callers on the board, we'll get back to you after the break. Join the conversation with sociologist, educator, and director of the Kwame Therese Center in Laventille, Trinidad, Dr. David Mohammed. We'll be right back. Listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumi.tv.com, abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I, Black Power, A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I, 
The only word you need to know to join your global Commit to You Black family, to join your interconnected Commit to You Black communities, escape the digital plantation now, abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of his people. The brother said responsibility. Is it, is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America? We have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Thank you. message to the black man because the black man today is a man who has been made now almost into a laughing stock nobody takes the black man serious we're just used to be somebody's tool we are the sportsmen we're the singers and the dancers and we're also labeled as the pimps and the criminals and the drug dealers, and the killers, and the vagabonds of society. We're the bogeymen of British society and other Western systems. And we want to dispel that lie and destroy those myths and put the black man back on the map where we belong. Who is the black man? The black man is the original man. If it wasn't for the black man, no other men could be on this planet. We are the fathers of humanity. We gave birth to all of you. vote 
they don't give you the money to run your campaigns. So here come big business. How are you? How are you, Judge? How are you, Alderman? <laughs> How are you, Congressman? How are you? How are you, Reverend? <laughs> well, what can I do for you today, Reverend? You can't do nothing for me. See, that's what we got to be careful of. We got to be careful of who we bow down to. But see, when you get in your congregation and you talk this Jesus, this powerful Jesus that's sitting at the right hand of the Father with all power in his hand, then you go with your hat in your hand to the governor, to the mayor, to the president, begging for some crumbs. You have sold your God cheap. And you make the white man downtown Disrespect all of us. Time for an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. We're in conversation this evening with sociologist, educator, and director of the Kwame Ture Center in Laventeel, Trinidad. Dr. David Muhammad is with us. You can join the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Dr. Muhammad. Yes, sir. Before we, um, you know what, I, I want I was enjoying. I was enjoying that very, very much. Oh, okay. Before, <laughs> before we transition into a couple other things, I'm going to get a couple of these calls involved and see if they had any questions or comments on what we talked about so far. Let's go to 267. 267? Yes, uh, Brother Elliot, I'm impressed with your guests, you and Brother Richard. Uh, good evening, Brother Muhammad. Uh, Brother Timothy from out of Temple Number 12. It's a pleasure to hear brother of your substance uh, and your knowledge to come on i appreciate that my brother oh, crazy to a lot. Are, are you with brother rodney yes but on the, yes he's a minister oh, number 12 at the present time. yes of course of course that's it yes sir. just just, yes, just sir. second just making sure um please please give him the greetings for me i haven't I, seen I'll him do that, since, sir. since I, I will do that. 2019 yes sir okay top of the clock we call 12 top of the clock um we try, you know, we try to live up to the reputation. We try. We all try. We're striving, brother. But I'm going to say, brother, you, you bring to mind, uh, when I read the the writings of Ho, Ho Chi Minh in graduate school, and there's oh, a good, very good point you bring, that's right, very good point that you bring out about the meeting of Ho and, 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 and Marcus Garvey. And when I think about yeah. that, I think about uh, Nakumba, when when he, he looked at Marcus Garvey and Nnamdi Zikawe, because Nakuma was influenced by Garvey when he said Africa must unite. And you think about that, and you think how, how we all can influence each other to become these yeah. things that make us as independent as we can. And the messenger had a way of bringing us together globally. Even in his lessons, he talked yeah. about who was the original man. He talked about who was mm-hmm. the white man. He talked about what was the total population of the original people all on the planet Earth. He wanted you to know the land 
the water, how much was land, how much was water. He okay. wanted you to know what we own and what the black man was and who, is black, who the black woman was with him. At the same time, brother, when you bring up, and I think about Ho Chi Minh, and I think about the Ho Chi Minh Trail that yeah. nobody could right, nobody could go through, only the, only the people from Vietnam who understood mm. it. And you had men who wore rubber soles and a bowl of rice who kicked mm. America's butt. They kicked the French butt. Everybody that came in here, they kicked their butt. And I'm thinking of modern time now, and we bring it to the where's that now. We're looking at this war that's going on with Afghanistan, right? And here again, they beat the Russians, and they beat America. If you talk to people that are walking up and down Philadelphia, because we're calling from Philadelphia, they'll tell you that war was won by America. They said the same thing in Vietnam. No, it wasn't. Listen to me. <laughs> what you were saying, brother, when you talk about Trinidad, and what we're saying when we talk about Africa, that it's nothing like fighting for your own country. See, that's a different thing going on. That when the Afghanians say, we don't want you in here, we need it. You might like to, you might not like the way we treat our women, but in the Holy Quran, we have a chapter on the woman, we have a chapter on the man. Now, different sects of Islam do different things. I like their fight, brother. When they come and they came into their capital, they had their machine gun in their army. They tell him like Castro. When Castro kicked out the big kid, he was on a tank with a cigar. Him and Jacob are. They say, we come for war. You're not coming in our house telling us what to do. We're running you out and you're getting out of here. That's the fight. Same thing with Haiti. Getting out of here. Yeah. You're out. So my respect for them and what they do is understanding what is yours, brother, and what you don't let anybody take. So mm. I'm looking at that, and I'm bringing it to Ho understood that, Haiti understood that, and if the Taliban understand it. So mm. don't put out this myth, this propaganda, this brainwashing. No. You got kicked out. And you lost. And mm-hmm. guess what? They talk They talk about air as a straight jab. But the, air is a straight jab. They want to hit you from the air. This thing can kill you. Wipe you out. Guess what? But they can't fight you toe-to-toe if you're prepared. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you, you know, with, with them, just to say, with, with Vietnam, um, it wasn't the American army fighting against the Vietnamese army. It was the American army fighting against the Vietnamese people. It was the old mm-hmm. man, the shopkeeper. It was Very the school student. It was the old lady walking the street. Even the Very scientists, good. you know, invented um, sexually transmitted diseases that they placed into the women who were engaged in prostitution to target the American soldiers. It's like they invented a strain of herpes together it was the whole nation that's the only way you can beat a giant and you know like same thing applies to us same thing applies to us um today. i like that i like that yeah i like that and like, guess what and they don't really know who the taliban is the taliban could be over here now you let anybody on the plane to come here so and he exactly. could, once they get it they can always call their leaders and we're here now we could do what we want to do here too that's that's the open enemy that's the thing they do to us we could always reverse it Thanks for your contribution, bro. Indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You, yes, sir. Indeed. Let's go to four. Oh, please don't forget to give Brother Rodney the greetings for me. Uh, yeah, I'm quite sure you heard it. Let's go to 404404. Yes, four, yes. four, four, four. Hey, 
Hey, peace and blessings, Elliot. Good show, you and Richard. Hey, my man from Trinidad. Look here, my brother. I ain't gonna be long winded like uh like man, my brother before me. But look here, man, I'm getting ready. I want ready to get the hell out of America, man. So if I come to Trinidad, I don't wanna see no white dog or no white cat, man. So if I continue Trinidad, man, I I don't wanna go to the motherland, that's too far. I wanna go somewhere in the hemisphere, man. Seriously, man. I'm serious, man. I'm tired of America, bro. Well hide the change rate and the government. See, I saw this program where mostly all these so-called free countries, they're still on the British rule. I saw they got the damn barristers. The barristers got, all, they black, right? All the damn lawyers and, and, they, and the government black. They got on black robes with fucking uh, white man, white powder wig, man. What the hell is that? So, uh, uh, you, know, well, you know what? Uh, all right. Yes, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna try to defend that. Yeah, so go ahead. Mm-hmm. There's a defense for it, right? I'm. I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna go there. But you know, I mean, mm-hmm. if you come to the Caribbean, you contact us, and mm-hmm. we would be able to put you in touch with some good people. There's one particular Caribbean territory, um, mm-hmm. which is Guyana, which has a yeah. lot of land that is available. Guyana is the same size as England. And England's population is approximately 60 million people. Guyana's population is less than 1 million people. So that gives you an idea of, um, I mean, their density of population is like seven people per square mile. You know, and land down there is very cheap. It's a very beautiful environment. And, um, you know, I mean, there are a lot of options. As a matter of fact, hey, that's uh, what Jim Jones went, though, right? Okay, that's what Jim Jones went, man. Yeah. There are other much better references to Guyana that we could make. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's, yeah. that's the one that has stuck. I but mean, Guyana is the land of Professor Ivan Van Setima, who wrote, okay. They Came Before Columbus, African Presence Before Columbus, and also Blacks in Science. Um, Guyana is the land of Walter Rodney, who wrote How Europe Underdeveloped mm-hmm. Africa, and Garnings with My Brothers. And Guyana is also the land of George G.M. James, that great scholar who wrote So Legacy. <clears throat> All right, so I mean, Guyana is is a very great land. A lot of uh, a lot of great people came out of there. I hear you, my brother, and uh, yeah, man, I just, that's where I'm, I, I, I'm ready to get out of here, man. But I want to be some close on this hemisphere, and uh, and uh, and oh, Trinidad has uh, the COVID over there, man, all that, man. What, what's going on with that? Well, I mean, it's, it's um, there's been a spike recently. There's currently a state of emergency, a lot of restrictions. Mm-hmm. We are combating the whole issue of forced vaccinations, especially on children. Um, you know, there's a United Nations convention, it's called the ICCPR, the United Nations International mm-hmm. Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, that that resulted from um, conversations and analysis out of the Nuremberg trials after the Jewish Holocaust. And these are some human rights policies, which included in them, um, you, you cannot, signatory countries cannot force citizens. Hey, yeah. hey, my brother, my brother. Oh, not, yeah. not, not, not to cut you off, man. Let him finish his statement. Yeah, I was, he's talking about the UN. I'm going to put in my, uh, I'm going to put in my, uh, I'm going to put in my, I'm going to put in my, I'm going to put
they the one doing all the chemtrails, Richard, around the world. Right, but that, but yeah, so but, but that, 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 that's another, that, that's another uh, conversation. That's another right. conversation. Yeah, the it, point we're making here is that. Yeah, thanks for your call, signatory countries. I got one more point. Yeah, hear me, hear me, hear me. I got one more point, man. Yeah, go on. Go, on. go ahead. Point. Finish your point. I got so, one more point. point. Come on. Okay, man. The one reason, the reason I want to get the hell out of here is look up when the CDC look up shielding, man. Okay, go to Richard. Go to the CDC site and look up shielding. They get ready to start concentration camps, man, in America. Okay, shielding. Where the unvaccinated people are going to be rounded up. It's in the CDC website, man. So that's why I'm getting ready to get the hell out of here, man. I'm serious, Elliot. Look it up, man. Richard, please look it up. Shielding, man. Y'all look that up in the CDC by shielding, man. All right. Peace and bless. I love you, my brother. Please. Stay strong. I thank you. Alaykum. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Malaykum Salaam. Yeah. Uh, finish your uh, point, that moment. No, no. You know, it was just that all of these signatory countries, these United Nations conventions, have signed on to honor um, these treaties or these conventions. Sorry, not treaties. So, but right now you're hearing all these conversations about forced vaccination. So it's a bit of hypocrisy there, but we're monitoring to see how it how it plays out. Uh, b- before I go to the next call, um, how are the, because I know that um, in 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 a lot of African countries, and and I assume a lot of countries in in, in uh, a lot of the uh, nations in the Caribbean are not uh, taking these European vaccines, the Moderna, the Pfizer, the uh, AstraZeneca, and the uh, Johnson and Johnson. Um, what are some of the things that our people have been doing in the islands that you're aware of being that you, a, you, you kind of go ahead? Yeah, but there's a lot of resistance. Basically, governments are in a very harsh and coercive way trying to get the public to vaccinate. Now the talk is that they want the, the children to vaccinate before they go back out to school. And so some employers are threatening employees that if they don't get vaccinated they'll lose their jobs and so on but you know from the very beginning we have adhered to the position taken by the honorable minister lewis farrakhan on july the 4th last year 2020 in a message entitled the criterion where long before there were even any covid 19 vaccines available the minister warned us that we should be very cautious about taking these vaccines, especially from those who have a history of genocide against black people. And I mean, just to be very, 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 very quick on this, medical genocide has been an option for political objectives on the part of Europeans from going back to 1766, when General Jeffrey Amherst deliberately infected blankets with smallpox and gave them to the Native American Indians to take their land. Then we have the Tuskegee experiment where 100 black men were deliberately infected with syphilis by the United States Government Health Department from 1932 to 1972, denied treatment. A lot of people thought that was a conspiracy theory until President Bill Clinton offered a presidential apology in 1997. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad told us in the 1950s to not take the polio vaccine, which later was discovered to contain the cancer-causing virus, monkey virus, SV40. Then you had the smallpox vaccination campaign in Africa from 1966 to 1977, which spread AIDS in Africa. 
event. Now, now let, let me let me let me just make a quick point. No, take your time. Myself, yeah, about myself as an academic. All right, I'll give one more reference first. <clears throat> the there was a hepatitis B vaccination campaign on homosexual men in New York in 1978 by the Centers of Disease Control. 1,083 homosexual men were deliberately were given this vaccine, hepatitis B vaccine. They were the first in America to get AIDS. There was a phase two of the vaccine in five other cities, which gave a total of 2,485 homosexual men in six cities in America, HIV AIDS. This is why initially it was thought to be a gay man's disease. Now, the point that I want to make about myself is that all of those references that I just gave, including June the 9th, 1969, Dr. Donald MacArthur of the United States military wrote to the United States Senate asking for $10 million to come up with a synthetic biological agent that can destroy the human immune system. Up to that time, there was no such thing. Then, 1974, Henry Kissinger drafts the NSSM 200 report, which said that they need to reduce world population in third world countries because, according to the report by Henry Kissinger, that America has 6% of the world's population, but they use 34% of the world's mineral resources, and those mineral resources are not in America, but they're in the third world. And the population growth of third world people poses a direct threat to the availability of those mineral resources to the American population. That he did that as representative national security advisor to President Richard Nixon. They were planning to obliterate darker people. All right, so Richard Nixon faced his issues, about to be impeached, he resigned. His vice president, Gerald Ford, became president. Then Gerald Ford lost the election to Jimmy Carter. So Jimmy Carter, completely different political administration. He comes in now, but he also has his national security advisor, who is John D. Rockefeller III, who wrote a policy called Project Global 2000. And the main objective of Project Global 2000 was to reduce world population from 5 billion people in 1975 down to 2 billion people by the year 2000. How can you possibly reduce world population from 5 billion to 2 billion in 25 years unless you have some plan of genocide? All right, so going back to 1969, the same American military, Dr. MacArthur, who said he wanted this $10 million to create this germ that does what AIDS does, even though it didn't exist at the time. In 1976, the money was granted. $10 million was given under House Bill Number 15090, 91st Congress, first session. The research was to take place at the P4 Laboratory in Fort Detrick, Maryland. And two years later, the injections came out for hepatitis and AIDS started to spread rampantly. Now, the point that I want to make about myself is all this information is really a fraction of the information we have available, but I, in a conversation like this, would only reference the material that they themselves have admitted to. Simply because I'm aware of how politicians use cliches like conspiracy theories mm -hmm. to try to combat truth, all right, well, I'm going to stay 
completely away from what you might call conspiracy theories. And I will only deal with the information that you have raised your hand and said, okay, I confess. Because it's like that same story with the World Health Organization spreading AIDS in Africa. On the front page of an Indian newspaper called The Patriot, July 4th, 1984, that story broke. World Health Organization spreads AIDS throughout Africa. All right. Then, October 30th, 1985, a Russian newspaper called The Lipton Gazette runs the same story. World Health Organization spreads AIDS in Africa. Okay. Well, that might not be so evident. You know, you could still say, oh, that's fake news. But then front page of the London Times, May 11, 1987. I'm begging our listeners not to take my word for any of this. All the information is available. <clears throat> front page of the London Times, May 11, 1987, runs the same story. World Health Organization spreads AIDS in Africa. And when it was on the front page of the London Times, that is when they confessed. And that is when they came up with their story about, oh, right, um, well, you see, we were trying to eradicate smallpox. And incidentally, smallpox has been eradicated, apparently. And they came up with their story and theory about in Africa, however many hundreds of thousands of years ago, Africans used to eat the meat of green monkeys and subsequently developed a dormant HIV infection on the African continent, which was re-aroused by the contents of the smallpox vaccine. And that is how 11 million people simultaneously got AIDS in Africa. The bottom line is they admitted it. Now you come in in 2021 and telling me I cannot keep my job or send my children to school unless I take a vaccine from the same people who gave 100 black men syphilis in Tuskegee, Alabama, same people who gave 11 million Africans in Africa AIDS, same people who have the Center for Disease Control Hepatitis B vaccination campaign, same people who spread cancer through the polio vaccines in the 1950s, which contained SV40, same people really started infecting the disease blankets and giving to the Native American Indians. How can I, as a black man, be justified in feeling comfortable volunteering myself to take a vaccine when you have that kind of history? And I am yet to hear any of the leading authoritative voices address those matters. Um, President Biden... If, sorry, if President no, Biden tomorrow holds a press conference and says, okay, we are sorry, we have done this, yes, but let me explain, I'd listen. But as it stands of now, I'm watching. Dr. Mohammed, uh, the, um, yes, uh, the, the Congo, the people of the, not the Congo, yeah. uh, Nigeria, sued Pfizer over experimental oh. use of a vaccine that was experimented on 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 uh, Nigerian children. Um, yep. Do you are you aware of that, or if you do, t- t- tell the listening audience some Absolutely. information. Absolutely. Go ahead. Absolutely. The the final call newspaper 
which is the most widely circulated black newspaper in the world, published by the Nation of Islam, ran a story about Pfizer, who did experiments on some 200 children. In 1996, in the state of Kano, and they were interested in um, testing, uh, again, an experimental drug, just like how this was an experimental vaccine. It was called Trovan, and they had these 200 children, Nigerian children, um, who they did these experiments on, and many of them, they got sick, some went blind, there was some um, slurred speech, brain damage, paralysis, deafness, muteness, and 11 of them died. Now, what followed was horrific because Pfizer hired a Nigerian doctor. His name was Abdul Hamid Issa Dutsi. And he was, just like with the Tuskegee experiment, they got black faces to appear on posters with the objective of making participants and volunteers feel comfortable and to trust the whole process. So Dr. Abdul Hamid Issa Dutse was like the poster boy for Pfizer, but, you know, he later released a statement saying, you know, he, he trusted these people, but he was misled. He didn't make any decisions. He wasn't a stakeholder in the process or anything like that. And, you know, after all of that, and after he resigned from them, one day, and this is less than one year ago, late last year, he walked into his office. He had all the files on what they were doing. Dr. Abdul Hamid walked into his office and dropped dead on the spot. And the state of Kano sued Pfizer for $2.75 billion, while the federal government of Nigeria sued Pfizer for $8.5 billion. That is more than $11 billion in damages for what they did to those 200 African children. But guess what? Pfizer got away with paying $75 million. They were sued for a total of $11 billion between the state of Kano and the federal government. $11 billion they paid $75 million. The, the How could we be justified in feeling comfortable taking a vaccine from people who do that? Yeah, the same Pfizer now that's pushing vaccines all in black communities here in the States and, and, uh, and in the islands, the same Pfizer. <laughs> but since when they've cared about us so much, though, you know, I mean... We, in our communities, um, the infrastructure is the worst, the food is the worst, the air is the worst due to pollution, the amenities are the worst, the roads are the worst. So we've always been a last consideration. But now all of a sudden they care so much about our health that they wanted to get this vaccine that they're even offering fried chicken. 
they offering burgers and fries. They're offering, I heard, I don't know who this is, they're offering um, legal marijuana. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, they, yeah. they clearly want us. The only thing I haven't heard them offering to us is watermelon. <laughs> you know, come and get your vaccine and you'll get a slice of watermelon. But it's so obvious and clear that there's, there's a burning desire to get us to take those vaccines when we've been lost for everything else. So that's a red flag to me. Let's try to get a couple more of these calls on. Let's uh, go. Before, before, before go ahead, Richard. Go, go ahead, Richard. Two, two points I want. I, go ahead. And, and not only that, because um, I wanted to um, ask Dr. Muhammad, could you, uh, if I got this right, your book is Black Studies, right? Um, is, is that right? Do you have a book out called, uh, entitled Black Studies? Yes, that is correct. My book is, yeah. I have three books, but my main book is Black Studies, um, The Black Book Mind Revolution, and it's available on our website. All of this information that we're discussing here um, is in the book. Most of it is in chapters four and five. But yeah, it's on the website, www.blackagendaproject.com. And before and before you go back to the phones, Elliot, I just wanted, because of what, um, and, and I appreciate what you just shared with us. I mean, it, hey, Elliot, it goes to, you know, especially the whole thing of the vaccine and vaccination. And yeah. now we get another dimension to the discussion. But as we center this in Black August, I wanted to um, raise um, Baba um, West Johnson out of his book, The Reparation Question, of what in Black August, you know, that we're about. And, and he raises, let us look at the definition of freedom. Freedom is the condition of being free from restraints, liberty of a person from slavery, detention, or opposition. This is the most important part, political independence, exemption from the arbitrary excesses of authority and performance of a specific action and civil liberties. What, what reason why I thought that was important in relationship with your presenting um, and we're discussing here um, Dr. Ma- Dr. Muhammad is because in a sense we're continuing our quest, our intergenerational quest for freedom and you uh, have laid out and in this discussion and in, with the calls of why it's important for us to continue the discussion of what freedom means why freedom is necessary and what are we doing to deal with um, freedom in the present moment as we celebrate and acknowledge Black August. I just wanted to bring that up, Ellie. If it, you know. mm-hmm. Oh yeah, most definitely. <laughs> uh, let's go, let's go to six, four, seven, six, four, seven in Toronto. Hello. Hello? Yes. We're here. Can you hear me? Toronto. We must have lost him. Let's uh, hope we hopefully he'll call right back, and we'll get him straight to the front of the line. Let's go to Oberlin, Ohio. Uh, Sean in Oberlin, how are you, sir? Yeah, I'm. I'm good. I'm good. It's been a minute. Um, I ca- I came in kind of late, so I don't really know the the subject matter. I was just listening to the comments. Um, I'll I'll take a back seat for a minute. Okay, no problem. Let's go to. Uh, Hold on one second. Let's go to uh, Toronto. Are you back? Yes, I am back. Can oh, you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Uh, greetings to you, Elliot. 
Richard and uh, uh, Dr. Muhammad. I had a question. First, I wanted to make a statement that uh, Rochelle McGee is, I think he might be the longest standing political prisoner. Rochelle McGee was born in, in, in Louisiana and he has been in prison in California. I think he might be 85 now, but he's maybe the longest standing uh, political prisoner in the United States as, as we speak. So there's a movement to, of course, bring his case to the uh, forefront. But I'm calling about uh, Costa Rica. Co uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and one of our heroes was Eric Allen Dolphy, the great uh, musician who, uh, you know, he was friends with John Coltrane, and he played on the spiritual. Well, he played on the spiritual, and he wrote many songs, including a song called Burning Spear about, uh, you know, uh, the Kenyan uh, a revolution. But Eric Eric Dolphy's uh, uh, mother, Sally uh, Dolphy, was born in Costa Rica, and his father, Eric Dolphy Sr., was born in, in, in Panama. And I didn't know that until I was, you know, in, you know, I just recently found that out in the last 10 years or so. You were talking about, you know, the, the, the uh, contribution that people from the Caribbean had made to the uh, struggle in uh, North America. And uh, yeah. what kind of impact did, did uh, uh, does Eric Dolphy have in the Trinidad today, or is the jazz... Uh, sort of in the background like it is among a lot of younger people in the, in North America, black people, that is. Right. Um, that's a bit difficult for me to answer, but on a more broad level, there has been a lot of um, interconnectivity of influences between the different expressions of black music. Now, a lot of this came out during the very unfortunate conversation surrounding Michael B. Jordan, who had branded a rum, brand of rum called Juve Rum. And some Trinidadians got upset because he's an American, so they say, um, and that Juve is a Trinidad thing. But the interconnectivity between our cultures is so, it, it, I mean, this is like a broad answer to your specific question. Um, but first of all, every single form of music is African. Music itself is African, just as much as water is wet. And you have different geographical locations where different brands of music would have emerged. Um, of course, Louisiana and jazz. Louisiana has a very close Caribbean connection, but even, even hip hop, um, I know this is debatable, but, you know, arguably hip-hop has some Caribbean roots through DJ Cool Herc, who started, uh, I, I know there was, there was some before him, but DJ Cool Herc basically, you know, flipped it, a record, which was a dub record instrumental and, you know, done, did spoken words over it. But um, the jazz influence, Calypso, um, reggae, Clips out of Trinidad, reggae out of Jamaica, jazz out of New Orleans, R&B, coming up out of the, the so-called Negro spirituals. Um, all of them are considered indigenous to the different geographical locations, but all of them also contain 
the spirit of Africa and the rhythms of our souls. Because what we know is music and rhythm is like an audio extension of the stillness of our spirit. So um, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad has said the black man is the original man, the maker, owner, cream of the planet, the God of the universe. And he said that if the black man wants to see God, all he has to do, he said the black man has been looking for God everywhere where he's not. In our Savior's arrive, he said, but if the black man wants to see God, he has to look in the mirror because God made man in his own image and likeness, according to the Bible, and geography, geology, anthropology, history, biology, all prove that the black man was the first man on earth in the region of Africa. So African people were made in the image and likeness of God. So if you want to see God in physical form, you look at black people. But if you want to hear that spirit, the sound is made through the vibrations of African music. But unfortunately, but imagine white people, white people have made more money off African music than African people themselves. And in almost every single African art form, white people have had the most successful um, music. You can pick, pick a genre, jazz. Kenny G has had the highest charting on Billboard jazz music. Hip hop, Beastie Boys were the first group to have a number one album. Um, R&B, well, I mean, we, we kind of strong there, but even in Calypso, the highest charting Calypso song ever, believe it or not, was a white man. His name was Buster Poindexter in his Banshees of Blue. He sang a song called Hot, Hot, Hot. Even reggae, Bob Marley never had a number one album on the Billboard charts, although Roots Rock Reggae hit the top 30. But UB40, white people who sang Red, Red Wine. Now, that is theft, as KRS once says at the beginning of his edutainment album. He said, when you have all African music and then you have something called the American Music Awards, you have what is called theft. So our influences are strongly interconnected with each other. I don't support the tribal argument to try to say that one group of Black people um, have the right to lay claim over a form of music that another group of Black people don't have the right to claim. You know, the kind of East Coast, West Coast politics, you know, um, which of course is enjoyable in a competitive type of rivalry. But, um, you know, to answer the question, there is a very close connectivity and there are massive um, intercultural influences among us as one people um, that, that would go on for volumes and volumes and volumes. Uh, before we, uh, was that your last question, uh, Toronto, or you had one other? Toronto? I guess he's he's not there. Let's go to 215. Yeah, good, good evening, Brother Elliot. Good evening, Brother Richard. And assalamu alaikum, my dear brother, Brother Muhammad, Dr. Muhammad. How you doing, dear brother? Walaikum salam. I'm fine by Allah's grace. Hope you are too. Yes, I am. You know, uh, Dr. Muhammad, as a student of the Most Honorable Elijah Muhammad under the leadership of the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan, it gives me great honor and pleasure to talk to you tonight. And I thank Brother Elliot and Brother Richard for having me on. First, Dr. Muhammad, before I talk about anything, I want to just kind of go back a little bit to what you said, because I made that same statement to Brother Elliot and Richard and on terrestrial 
black radio station here in Philadelphia. When the hell did white folks get so concerned about our health? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I made that statement so many times. I like saying all of a sudden they so concerned about black people. They, and, and they, came out. Exactly, and they and they and they pushing black doctors and, and black celebrities to push that on black people. I'm saying, I'm saying, like you said, Doctor Muhammad, we live in, in, in neighborhoods with food deserts. Our schools, our children mm-hmm. go to piss poor schools with asbestos in it. I mean, you name it. Flint, in Flint, Michigan, we drinking poison and bathing in poison water. But all of a sudden, these good white folks care about us getting the vaccine. I'm saying, when did they care about our health so much? You know, it's just you know, like like I seen your heart say, it's things that make you go, hmm. You know, you got to think for a second yeah. on that. And and also too, on the brother from Toronto, he mentioned Eric Dolphy. That's one of my favorite. I just have to say this in a, as an aside. That's one of my favorite jazz saxophonists. I mean, and like the brother from Toronto said, he was great. Good friends with the with the late great John Coltrane and stuff. I mean, just 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 yeah. marvelous music, man. Just two brothers that can play the sax like him, Coltrane, uh, uh, Charlie Bird, Parker. I mean, I can go on and on. You get the you get the point. Mm-hmm. But 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 Doctor Muhammad, let me say this before I get into the gist of the conversation on Trinidad. A, a good neighbor, a yeah. good friend of mine. She's an elder up here in Germantown in Philadelphia. She's a native of Trinidad. Last mm. summer, she she had brought a ticket for both of us because she wanted me to, because she takes frequent trips back to Trinidad and Tobago. She had wanted me to spend a week with her in Trinidad, but because of COVID nineteen, it canceled. We were set to, right. to go to go this summer, Doctor Muhammad. But again, because of the spike and everything, and by her being the elder, yeah. she wasn't comfortable. So, inshallah, we plan on going the summer of 2022. Things be somewhat back mm. to normal. We're gonna take out. We're gonna spend. A, I'm gonna spend a week with her and her family in Trinidad. So, inshallah, I pray that things be settled. So, because I would love to visit the country. So, we plan on going the summer of next year in, in Trinidad. And, and and as far as Brother Kwame Ture, I told this story too, Doctor Muhammad. I had the honor about 25 years or so, Brother Jibo and his beautiful wife Sharon, they'd have a row home in West Philadelphia. And uh, they were members of the All African Freedom Revolutionary Party. And they had a big mm. dinner. And, and, and I was sitting, I never forget it, Dr. Muhammad. I was sitting right there in this house. I was sitting next to Brother Kwame. I'm sitting, I'm sitting there. Here I'm just a little poor wow. black boy from North Philadelphia. And I'm sitting next to Brother Kwame, sitting right there. And he was sitting, everybody was casual. We were sitting there with our jeans flip-flops on, we sit in the house because they prepared a delicious dinner, healthy fish, chicken, vegetables, fruit, uh, cakes, pies, beverages, uh, everything non-alcoholic, of course. And we're just sitting there eating. Brother Palmer, he got his hands, he got his sleeves, you know, he's sitting there, you know, eating just like everybody else. I mean, we out there eating and just talking, shooting the breeze, reminiscing, talking about history, talking about his, his friendship with Dr. King. And I'm just sitting next to this brother, man. I, I, I was in awe of Dr. Muhammad. I'm sitting next to this iconic figure, and we just sitting in the row house in West Philadelphia, man. We just And we, we sat there after dinner, uh, Dr. Muhammad. We sat there for like three hours, you know, we were having a good conversation, time passed. And you lose all sense of time. We sitting there talking, and before I know anything, it was like almost twelve thirty, one o'clock in the morning. We just sitting there talking about everything. He was reminiscing about his his time with with Dr. King, with you know with John Lewis. I mean, just you know the snick everything. He just oh man, was, I never forget that day, Dr. Muhammad. As long as I live, I was so honored to be in his presence, man. I, wow. I talked I talked to Brother well, what, 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 what year would that have been? There had to be. I'm a. I'm, if I, if my memory, I'm, I just turned 60 years old. It's July. If my memory served, because that was had to be back in 1987, 1988, I guess. I mean, it was, it was mm. longer than 20 something. Yeah, it may have been 30 something years. I think it was back in 87, 88. 
something somewhere around mm-hmm. that time frame, 1987, 1988, right there. The Rohan was, remember, Brother Gibo and his wife still live there now, and I talked to them from time to time and everything. And we always talk about that day they had that nice dinner and honored Brother Kwame right at their house. You know, I mean, it was it was mm-hmm. a memorable to me, Doctor Muhammad, it was a memorable occasion. It's something that I'll never forget. You know. So I mean, I was just oh. honored to be there, and and, and, and you know, Doctor Dr. Muhammad, and I don't want to take up too much. Earlier, I know you got other callers, but you know, you talk about this vaccine, and you, you talk about the United States imperialism. I mean, these people, I don't even know where to begin, Doctor Muhammad. The, the, the arrogance of these people, as far as you know, they 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 they, 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 they see what's going on in Afghanistan. I don't know how many times, Doctor Muhammad, over the years, I listen to national public radio or even the mainstream media, and you be listening, and then it, it'll come across that an errant drone attack hit in the eastern province of Afghanistan while they was having a wedding ceremony or janaza and killed innocent mm. Afghani men, women, and children. And what did the yeah. white commentators say? My bad. Oops, our bad. You know, it's a mistake. Collateral damage. Mm-hmm. My bad. And I'm going to say, oh, it might be your bad and your so-called mistake, but, that, but those people that you killed, if surviving members, they want some payback. Like James Brown said on the mm-hmm. song, the big payback. See, this is how arrogant and stupid white people are. You think you're just going to kill people and don't think their family members going to want some kind of payback, and you, and you, and you, excuse, it all, you excuse it away by saying, oh, my bad. Like, that, they, they're supposed to stop mm-hmm. something, you know, my bad. And this is the kind of mentality, Dr. Muhammad, that you're dealing with, you know what I mean? And that's why I was so glad when you came on, you was talking about the Vietnam thing, about how Ho Chi Minh, how, how Brother Kwame visited Ho Chi Minh, and, and how, how yeah. these people gave us how to deal with this, this Caucasian, this devil, and how he does things. I mean, because these people, they, they have, they, bottom line, Dr. Muhammad, they lack humanity, man. They always try to justify wrongdoing, evil, and they, and, they, and they love to use these silly Negroes to do their bedding for them and to get up there and, and prop them up and everything like that. But it's, it's like when you talk about Marcus Garvey, how the six black men was used to take Marcus Garvey down, and that same mindset, unfortunately, exists today. And I'll close with this, uh, Dr. Muhammad. You look at Brother Malcolm. They use infiltrators in the nation of Islam to pit the Honorable Elijah Muhammad against Malcolm. You know, they, these traitors, the, 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 the FBI agent that was yeah. hovering over Malcolm at the Art of Bar Barroom, he was an FBI informant and stuff. I mean, you see this go yeah. on and on. Of course, with Marcus Garvey, you, you see the same thing with Dr. King, the photographer. They used to, mark, to, to go with Dr. King and Dr. Abernathy around the country while they was fighting mm-hmm. for our rights and everything. When he died, they come to find out, and his daughter was ashamed Come to find out, he was a, a, a informant for Jagger Hoover. I mean, you know, so we, we see this, this kind of behavior from some of these Negroes time and time again, whether they're male or female. We see this traitorous actions, but thank Allah that we these people are exposed and we doing the best we can to do it. We ain't gonna let that deter us. We're gonna keep fighting for our people's liberation around the world. We're not gonna be deterred by these traitors. We're gonna keep doing what we have to do, Doctor Muhammad. You keep doing what you're doing, brother, in Trinidad. And like I said, I hope by the answer grace of Allah. I can get over there next summer. And, Dr. Muhammad, all I can tell to bless you and your family, brother. You keep doing what you're doing, me, and your, your, your breath of knowledge. Because I didn't know that history of Marcus Garvey about them two, six traders. I oh, admit that. Yeah. I, I, learned that. I learned something new tonight. And I thank you for bringing that to the Time for the Waking uh, listener audience, uh, uh, Dr. Muhammad. May Allah continue to bless you, my brother. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And, you know, be sure to look us up. You know, anytime anyone visits Trinidad, you know, be sure to look us up. Uh, we're not hard to find at all. <laughs> Dr. Muhammad, before we uh, start winding things down, um, mm-hmm. talk a little bit about uh, um, the Black Agenda Project. Um, is that a conglomeration of uh, uh, 
you know, media in the different islands. Uh, how, how's that? Just talk a little bit about it, because I right. think that these linkages are very important to yeah. uh, to get information out for our struggle presently. We need to get independent media options other than uh, what we're yeah. receiving here in the uh, U.S. and other places. Yeah. So the Black Agenda Project is an organization that was launched by members of the Nation of Islam in Trinidad. Um, we created this organization through which we acquired the land that we have. Mm-hmm. And the structure of the organization, as I would have said at the beginning, is based on the nine ministries or action groups, which was a template designed by the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan for the 10th anniversary of the Million Man March uh, in October 2005, which is called the Millions More Movement. And the nine committees that we have are health, agriculture, education, defense, arts and culture, business, justice, information, and science and technology. And we would normally, for our AGM, our annual general meeting, we will have four members come together. We have our auditorium. Could, I mean, our auditorium could squeeze in seven, 800 people, but we have nine individual tables for each committee to simultaneously have their action group meetings. And then for the second half, we will have presentations from the chairpersons of each of the nine committees. And then I will do the future address. And then each of the committees, um, we have different projects taking place in line with each of the committees. So right now, every Friday, we have the African farmers market at our building. So black farmers are bringing their produce um, and they will be available on sale. So rather than going through the middleman grocery or supermarket, you know, we come straight there and get the freshly harvested produce from our own um, farmers. We have currently um, lessons, school subjects for students taking place that's every day, Monday to Friday, you know, math, English, business, accounts, social studies, biology, literature, study skills, etc. We put black history in everything that we teach. And we have had public speaking workshops. Um, as I said, we have the African Expos. Yesterday, we had our eighth one. Um, we are about to launch our Boys Academy, which we had to, we, we had actually set the date of June the 5th to launch the Boys Academy, but um, due to the state of emergency, we had to postpone that. But as soon as the state of emergency is over, we will set a, another date. Uh, you know, mentorship system, there's a young Black Queens Girls Club. Um, so, I mean, we, we, we try to stay as busy as we possibly can be. On Saturdays, I'm in office and I would see people from the public, you know, coming in. And now, yeah, so, so the there's bo- a lot going on. The Boys Academy, is that like a uh, um, rites of passage? That is incorporated into it, but it's more a, a triangulation mentorship type structure where we have a committee of 22 men. We have a doctor, we have a lawyer, we have a police officer, a soldier, we have businessmen, contractors, different people. And every adult male coming into the fold must bring two young males as a mentorship type of structure. And then we have additional outreach pathways um, through our currently existing lessons program 
also through word of mouth, going through the community, etc. So our, our idea is to create a fraternity of young, conscious black men. The Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan did an address some time ago entitled Boys to Men, where he outlined this whole concept of righteous passage of young individuals, but more dominant and impacting than any other method of teaching and training young young men is the visibility of positive male role models. And most of our negative behaviors are picked up from what our younger generations have observed. And so um, by us creating this network, we're positive about the results of it. And um, so yeah, we're very anxious to launch that particular initiative, but everything else is already up and running. And our Nation of Islam lectures hosted by myself are also held every Friday, every Sunday, but we're about to resume those as well, just waiting for the state of emergency um, to come off. And every year, we, our main event, well, we, I guess you could say we have two main events in the year. One is the African Liberation Day, May 26th. Uh, we have our African Unity Conference. Again, we bring together representatives from almost every aspect of social life and consciousness in our entire region. And of course, we, we celebrate Black History Month in November in, um, in Trinidad as well. So we have a full month of activities. We bring in school children by the bus loads, PowerPoint presentations that I would do. And um, I mean, there's a whole range of activities. Yes. Richard, it sounds like a, a institution that has been built down there in, in uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, it's got, it's, uh, you know, I'm just, um, I don't want to say amazed, and, and I want to say, um, you know, thank you, Dr. Muhammad, and, you know, all that you, all the people that you work with, because what, what you just um, displayed is, you know, a, as Elliot said, an institution, but another model that we can be able to replicate. And I hope oh, those from the Time for Weakening audience recognize if you don't see the facts, the actual, is there facsimiles within the areas that you live to, that need mm -hmm. that support? Because that's what we need to be able to build those institutions in order to make this international um, connection um, to create. And I like what you had said earlier when you were talking about the six casual causal values, the stability of our, you know, because I think that's what we're, that's what we're striving for when we talk about liberation, right? The stability of our home. Yes, sir. Uh, before we, uh, before we ended, uh, uh, Dr. Muhammad, give uh, any information out how people can uh, uh, get some of the books, uh, other things, anything you want to uh, let the folks know about, the floor is yours. Yeah, so the um, the book, and you know, I mean, it has really been a roller coaster ride because we published the book six years ago, Black Studies, and from that time to now, it's been launched in about twelve or thirteen countries, about mm. twenty-five different cities. But most important, what is most special of all about black studies is so we had a sale yesterday at the african expo and we had another sale um, on emancipation day august the 5th what was most moving for me is that the amount of people 
purchased that book this month, he would have been considered too young to read it when it was published just six years ago. The amount of 17, 18, 19, and 20-year-olds, let me just say this if I may, something that, that is um, a personal sense of achievement. <clears throat> I celebrated my 51st birthday on Marcus Garvey Day, August the 17th. It's about 12 days ago. Congratulations. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I started doing this when I was 22. Right? I was born in England and joined the Nation of Islam over there. And I came back to Trinidad to get that work started here. So I was 22 years old. I came to Trinidad, went to a place called Woodford Square, you know, just started speaking, shouting at the top of my voice, sharing all this, this teachings from Minister Farrakhan and all this black history and African consciousness. And I was a 22 year old doing that. Eventually rented a building, invited people in, handed out some flyers. Then I ended up on the radio, then on television and the rest is history. But what touches me now at this stage in my life. Let's call it middle age. <laughs> what great, work, me great work. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't laugh, I'll cry. But what touches me now right, is that when I was 22, most of my audiences, a few were my same age, but most were in their 30s and 40s. From what I recall, by the time I got to my 30s, most of my audiences were in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. When I was in my 40s, just the other day, my audiences were, say, you know, I mean, of course, but the bulk of my audiences were, say, between their 30s and 60s. <clears throat> but now that I've just crossed 50 plus one, for let's say the last 12 months, most of my audiences have actually been between the ages of 18 and 25. Wow. Target. And that, that is a total blessing. That is a sense of accomplishment. Because not only are we teaching and training them with information, but we're preparing them with leadership so that after all of us go, they will be here pushing that same agenda at 100 times the rate and pace that we're doing it now. And it is because we came together and built our own institution. The amount of buildings and city halls and community centers and libraries that we hired and rented over the years, but we'll bring the people out, we'll have an event, and then everyone will go back home. But now we have a home. And as we say at the opening of our meetings, not a home for you to come to and sleep, but a home for you to come to and wake up. And we have an institution. We have holiday camps for the children. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking about five years, six, seven, eight years old. They will eventually end up in the education program. And those who end up in the education programs will end up becoming entrepreneurs by pooling their resources with each other. And 
I want to conclude telling a short story, if I may. <clears throat> uh, this, is, this is a story to demonstrate the power of us pooling our resources economically, even if we have little or next to nothing. It is a story about a lady who owned a hotel. Her name was Jenny. One day, a tourist came to Jenny's hotel and said to Jenny, I would like to stay here for the night, but I would like to see the rooms first to decide on whether or not I want to stay because I'm very picky. Jenny said, fine. The tourist put $1,000 down on the desk. And Jenny told her assistant, take him upstairs and show him the room. The assistant took the tourist upstairs to show him the room. Jenny picks up the $1,000 and she takes it to her electrician because the week before, Jenny rewired her house the electrician who did the job, she didn't get to pay him as yet. She was in debt to him, so she paid him that $1,000. The electrician took that $1,000 and took it to a plumber because the electrician had a burst pipe in his home the week before. The plumber came and repaired it, but the electrician didn't get to pay him as yet, so he paid him now with that $1,000. The plumber took that $1,000 to his mechanic because his car engine was overheating the week before he had to park it up. He called the mechanic out of an emergency. He didn't have money at the time. The mechanic came, fixed his car, he didn't get to pay him as yet, so the plumber paid the mechanic. The mechanic took that same $1,000 and took it to a caterer because you know, I mean, incidentally, the, the mechanic had gotten married the week before and he didn't get to pay the wedding planner and the wedding planner still went ahead and did all the work and said, it's all right, pay me when you can. So the mechanic paid the caterer, the wedding planner, the same $1,000. And the wedding planner took that $1,000 straight back to Jenny, who owns the hotel because the wedding planner had another event at the hotel ballroom the week before that. Didn't get to pay us yet, but now she has the money, came and paid it to Jenny. Jenny takes the money, puts it right back down on the desk where the tourist left it in the first place. As soon as she puts the money down, the tourist comes back downstairs with the assistant and the tourist says, um, Jenny, I'm sorry, but I won't be staying in your hotel tonight. He picks up his $1,000 and leaves. Among those five people, though, $5,000 was just spent. Where is the money? You, you, you can't say that the electrician wasn't paid because he got his money. He was paid in full. You can't say the plumber wasn't paid. He also got it. He was paid in full. Same thing with the mechanic. He got all the money that was owed to him, just like the wedding planner. And Jenny herself, who was owed $1,000 by the caterer, but 
she got her money as well. Everyone got paid. $5,000 was just spent. But again, where is the cash? And the moral of the story is that the real value is not in the paper. The real value is in the networking of the human resource. <laughs> if we as black people can unite, settle our differences, pool our resources, come together and establish skilled banks and think tanks, we immediately begin to generate capital in its most valuable form, which is through the human resource, and that wealth can be encapsulated within our own communities. So as I say, if 1,000 poor people grow $1,000 worth of food in a poor community in one year, that would be $1 million in added food security. But our problem is we don't put the word food and the word security in the same sentence. If we grow our own food to that effect, that's $1 million less in street crimes, $1 million less in money that needs to be made by selling drugs, $1 million less in petty robberies. But our unity is in our own hands. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad said, the black man must do for self or suffer the consequences. We must unite and build a black economy. And I pray that through this discussion that we would have had, we could open up some channels between us over here in the Caribbean um, and over there in America, our people in the United Kingdom, that we can continue to um, build ties between us. And, you know, as we would have said earlier, we did mention that Marcus Garvey was born in Jamaica, in the Caribbean, but also Kwame Toure, who popularized the phrase Black Power, was born in Trinidad, along with Henry Sylvester Williams, C.L.R. James, and George Padmore, started the world's first Pan-Africanist movement, born in Trinidad. Um, Malcolm X's mother was born in Grenada. The father of the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan was born in Jamaica, and his mother was born in St. Kitts. Um, the man who started Black Freemasonry, about Prince Hall, was born in Barbados. And I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So many of our scholars and writers and researchers. So we're one people in this diaspora and literally on this globe. And I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to share these thoughts um, out of Trinidad. And I hope that we can at some point um, interact again soon. I'll be in touch, sir. Oh, listen, before we go, I'll be remiss. Uh, any of your contacts heard anything about what's going on with our brothers and sisters in Jamaica after the earthquake? Um, right, we Haiti. did. Jamaica or Haiti? In, 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 I mean, Haiti, Haiti. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But, yeah, we have been in correspondence with our representative from Haiti, that's Brother Joseph McCandell. Okay. Um, that was actually after the assassination of the president out right. there. But, I, I mean, it's it's such a terrible situation and there's so much abuse of the processes of getting aid over there as well. But I mean, our Haitian brothers and sisters are the most resilient that we have. I mean, no one is stronger than them. And I mean, despite and victimization against them from the Haitian revolution, you know, best testimony to the grudges that are held by our enemies. But, you know, Haiti, of course, at all times remains in our 
in our hearts and minds. Dr. Muhammad, I'll so, be in so, t- um, so, yeah, so, Go ahead. Yeah, so, so, so just to conclude, um, the, the books are available along with our online radio station on the website, www.blackagendaproject.com. And to find me, that same, that same handle, Black Agenda Project, um, youtube.com slash blackagendaproject, instagram.com slash blackagendaproject, facebook.com slash blackagendaproject. And now we just opened a, a new TikTok account, tiktok.com slash blackagendaproject. You can use that handle. Same email address as well, blackagendaproject at gmail.com. Um, and you'll find us. So thank you once again. I'll be in touch, sir. Yes, thank sir. you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Richard, let me play this last set of commercials, then we'll close right out. All right, thanks. Time for an Awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network for podcasting or live program scheduling. Hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety.
Habibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Habibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global commit to you black family, to join your interconnected commit to you black communities. Escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. I am an African. The death of my brother is also my death. Let me put this question to you again, because many foolish black middle classes and many foolish people who are eating well think that they can sit in America and watch this country destroy the African continents and watch this country destroy African Caribbeans and watch this country destroy Africans in Central and South America and think that these same people who destroy Africans abroad will not be the same people who will destroy them in America. There are fools in this this country who try to claim that they are not Africans, who claim that they do not see color, as if they're not seeing color makes any difference in the world. Simply because you don't see color doesn't mean somebody does not see you as color, and that's the issue. And you think then that you can sit in this country while this same nation and these same people that you sleep with and marry and love and so forth can go out and destroy African people and not think those people do not see you as African. Even though you choose not to see yourself as African, you better think again. You're out of your mind and you're headed for death. You must understand that. Hide behind it. I am an American. Ladies and gentlemen, the death and destruction of black people will follow those kind of abstractions. Probably the next five or ten years will indicate whether or not the black man can survive. Our struggle for survival is a very real struggle. And the white man has prepared genocide for black people. Unemployment, the black man is no longer necessary. Unemployment is going to be a way of life for black people. We are going to face increasing dangers and problems as the days pass. And we're totally unequipped as black people to deal with them. We're a part of a slave culture. We have no preparation. We have no black institutions capable of dealing with white racist institutions designed to serve only white people. We must deal with the problem that confronts black people by building black institutions, by understanding that only a separatist position is a viable position for black people. Any organization or any leader in America who today advocates integration is a foe and an enemy of black people and their survival in the coming years.
this crooked game of power politics here in America, the Negro, namely the race problem, integration, civil rights issue, are all nothing but tools used by the whites who call themselves liberals against another group of whites who call themselves conservatives, either to get into power or to retain power. Among whites here in America, the political teams are no longer divided into Democrats and Republicans. The whites who are now struggling for control of the American political throne are divided into liberal and conservative camps. The white liberals from both parties cross party lines to work together toward the same goal. And white conservatives from both parties do likewise. The white liberal differs from the white conservative only in one way. The liberal is more deceitful, more hypocritical than the conservative. Both want power, but the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor. And by winning the friendship and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon in this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. The American Negro is nothing but a political football. Listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. I want to thank our guest this evening, sociologist, educator, and director of the Kwame Therese Center in Laventille, Trinidad. Dr. David Muhammad was with us. Richard. Yes, sir. You know, I, I think that was a fitting uh, tribute to Black August to see the work that has been done by Dr. Muhammad and the others that are working with him, uh, the institution that the uh, that they've established down there and it's only going to grow. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not a small, and anytime they got an auditorium, it'll fit seven or 800 people. That's not a small place. To hey, hey, hey. 6,000 <laughs> square feet ain't bad. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it's, it's good to see, um, what's going on there. Um, you know, around, uh, this time a hundred years ago, or maybe a little earlier, a lot of folks was coming out of the islands, uh, coming here and made a huge impact. I mean, we we covered some of them tonight. Uh, Marcus Garvey, uh, uh, CLR James, George Padmore, Cyril Briggs, a lot of folks, and there might be history repeating itself. Uh, the only thing hey. different, the only thing different about this time, Richard, that is that we need more of a uh, more people involved. Put it that way, instead of having individuals, because this man, I guess he's. Uh, seem to have perfected the art of trying to eliminate an individual and kill a movement. Uh, but now uh, I think we've learned from some of that and uh, we're developing more minds to attack these issues. And I think Dr. Muhammad, in that example he gave about that thousand dollars show how that works. I hope everyone got that, how it works. 
Um, <laughs> it ain't about the paper. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but, uh, you know, if, if we're poisoned by this Western society, it is about the paper. And that's the thing, mm-hmm. Richard. What that, that example he gave is not a Western mentality at all. So, uh, I mean, yeah. the struggle continues, and we see that it's, it's work being accomplished. It's not all in vain. It's not all gloom and doom. It's work being accomplished. And that's, you know, that's what we try to do on this program is showcase the work being accomplished, whether it's in the states or outside these states. It's work being done. And, and you know, Elliot, uh, as we close on it, you know, um, September is the month of the International Underground Railroad. Um so what, what goes into that, um, that whole from coming out of, you know, um, de- dealing with the Black Hawk and acknowledging, commemorating and learning about the um, Black political prisoners and, and how we can be able to address. But remember, Sh- Sh- uh, Asada Shakur was a, a political prisoner, mm-hmm. but it was that continuation of that Underground Railroad that got her, when we talk about the Caribbean and the islands, right, that got her out of prison into Cuba where she sits today, and they can't even get to her, even though her bill is at, what, $7 million? Isn't it in the millions? Yeah, bounty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bounty, right. So it's just, it's just ironic. Before we leave this evening, um, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Tune in to African Perspectives with Brother Oshi. Always interesting dialogue and guests on African Perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Later on, Monday evenings, uh, Black Therapy Central from 8 to 9. Black Therapy Central with host Dr. Bawir Kanban and Dr. Kamal Kanban. And then after their program from 9 to 10 on the first Monday first and third Monday of every month conversation reparations uh, in Cobra's program. That's the first and third Monday of every month and tomorrow will be a program. So uh, tune in to conversation reparations after black therapy central on Tuesday from eight to 10 PM black reality think tank with Dr. William Rogers on Friday time for an awakening is back from eight until and on Saturday from seven to nine, the elders of Sankofa, with Brother Alfonso Watkins, and then Sunday from 7 until time for An Awakening is back. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Uh, Richard, before we leave, um, uh, the museum, is it back up and running? And oh, yeah, yeah they're, they're, uh, I think, since the July, the second week in July, what's this? This is August, yeah. Second week in July has been... Um, up and uh, doing exhibits and tours and, um, you know, under the restrictions is uh, different. Like now you have to like go in advance, get a ticket because there's only so many people allowed in at a certain time. And it's a certain time they have, they have the opportunity to tour the museum and then they are um, they're leaving. And um, Anna Russell Jones is a, a print person that's now on a major exhibit um, you know, that's the leaving soon. And one of the, uh, someone from Philadelphia, Richard Watson, who if anybody is aware of the Church of the Advocate, the mural in the Church of the Advocate, um, during the Black Power Conference, 
um, in 67. Um, and the mural that is there, um, Richard Watson was a part of those artists that's there and then a permanent um, asset to the museum. And he'll be exhibiting his work um, in the next rotation. And they still have the uh, <clears throat> mass circulations indoors and uh, right. up good. Because that's the only and, 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 right and and and, and uh, I, I, you open that door um, because um, I hope you know I, I want to emphasize or as a personal thing you know the major exhibit the core exhibit for right now is Black Philadelphia seventeen seventy six to eighteen seventy six and the question you know as we deal with in all the uh, episodes and all the programming that you bring through Time for Awakening and the guests that you have. Um, the question of how do we see, because in 2026, they'll be celebrating 250 years of the Declaration of Independence. And uh, for us, you know, Dosen's interpreter of the history of Black folks um, in America is how do we see, how do we stand and see what they were, um, they're celebrating and we are here? Um, how do we see that from that origin of this here project? and our, our thing in it. So we're working through trying to create that interpretive process of making a narrative of how we see it more than just being included like we were included when this country was formed. Okay. <clears throat> well, listen, I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion, as always, and we'll be back on Sunday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon, or you're watching your children playing after school.
Save the children. 